0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. All right, we're gonna continue in a series I started uh, last week on the book of Luke. We started in Luke chapter four. And, uh, and as I said last week, we're, we're focusing um, in on Jesus, because he, there's some characteristics. I talked about joyful, generous, and fearless. And uh, those are characteristics I believe we see in Jesus and that we're going to see come alive in this series about Jesus, and, and I'm really pumped about it. Um, I'm not going, just to, just to give you that, I'll say this the first couple of weeks of the message series I'm not, gonna, I'm not promising, I know we're working through the book of Luke, I'm not promising to hit, hit every single verse. In fact, I'm promising not to hit every single verse because then we would be in this series for years and I want to be here months, not years, okay? So I'm going to kind of pick and choose. I might, be, I might spend a couple of weeks in a chapter and then I might pass very quickly through uh, several others. But we're going to work our way, kind of skip our way through the book of Luke. And today I want to read you a story, just a few verses, Luke 4, 16 to 22. And it's the story of Jesus. He, it's his, kind of his coming out part. He's been baptized, he's gone into the wilderness, he's anointed with the, with the Holy Spirit and power, and he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he reads a messianic prophecy to them. And uh, we're, so we're kind of seeing the kickoff of his, of his ministry, all right? And, uh, and Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now I just want you to pay attention to these next couple of verses. I just love Jesus' flair for the dramatic. I mean, he has stage presence. I can hardly wait till he comes back. He's going to put on some shows for us, all right? So he stands up. He reads this messianic prophecy to them. And they're all kind of gaping because they've watched him grow up, okay? They've watched him grow up through puberty, his voice cracking, all this sort of stuff. He leaves. He comes back. He reads this messianic prophecy. He stands there. And then he just calmly rolls up the scroll. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Everybody's looking at him. Gets up, reads this prophecy, Rolls it up, sits down, and it says, in the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Don't you just, I just, I just love his verve, his panache, right? I was looking up the thesaurus this week just for some things to describe Jesus. But anyway, (laughs) verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he gets up, he reads it, he rolls it up, everybody's looking at him, he sits down and they're all looking at him and he says, today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Let me just pray briefly one more time for this message. Jesus, would you be glorified in this message today? Would you encourage us? Would you fill us with hope? Would you touch us with your spirit? In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, let's work our way through these six verses. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. i want to draw something out here that I didn't think I was going to touch on in this message. I hadn't, hadn't really paid attention to it before, um, but I just couldn't get past it here in verse 16. But it says, He came to Nazareth, Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Isn't it crazy to you that Jesus went to church? The Son of God, as was his custom. He didn't just go to church every now and then. As was his custom custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So God takes on flesh, he comes down. Now, I know technically, and there'll be some of you that are, uh, you know, with your personality, very te- technically minded, and that's good, I'm glad the way God made you, and you're thinking, that wasn't church, that was a synagogue, and I know, technically it wasn't church, Jesus hadn't died yet, he hadn't risen from the grave, they, they weren't Christians, okay, they didn't believe in him uh, that way, so I know technically it wasn't church, but it was, it was a gathering of God believers to read the scriptures and worship God, so it was sort of their version of church. And what's crazy to me is, God takes on flesh, and when he comes to earth in the flesh, he goes to church every single week. Why? Why? Was he he coming to learn something? Like, did he have out his little cell phone message notes and a ballpoint pen? And he's thinking, what's the guy going to teach me today? Is that why? No. I mean, he's the creator of the universe. That's a fine reason to go to church, and we should learn some things at church, but that's not why Jesus went to church. He, didn't, learn, he didn't, didn't need to learn anything. When he was 12 years old, his parents left, thought he was with them, and he was back at the temple. Three days later, they, when they went back and they found him, he was teaching at 12 years old the religious leaders. He didn't lead, need to learn anything. He was the God of the universe, and he knew what he was talking about when it came to God and the scriptures. He is the word of God. So why did he go to church every single week, as was his custom? Well, I think there's no doubt there's many reasons, and I never like to confine God to only the couple of points that I think up in a message, but certainly I can think of a couple of reasons why God, when he would be here on earth, would want to go to church. And two of those reasons would be because God wants a family and because God wants glory. God wants a family. That's why in heaven we're going to be together. We're not all going to be living in solitary confinement in heaven. Aren't you glad? Now, some of you are not glad yet, but you're going to get some inner healing yet at some point, and then you're going, to, you're, not, you're going to be happy about that, all right? And I know that some of you come from difficult families, and there's woundedness and all that kind of stuff, and so for you, it's not a joy to be together with your family. But here's the thing about God. He loves a family, and when you have a good family, a good family brings joy when it's together. And God wants a family. He doesn't just want a bunch of individuals praying to him during the week now that's important and we will talk about your devotional life again at the end of this message as we did last week and as we're talking about in many of our cell groups right now this month okay but god wants a family it's the way he's wired us it's the way he's wired our brains it's the way he's wired our souls and our bodies we were made to be together that's where the joy is and god gets tremendous glory when his family is together And happy and praising his name corporately and publicly, he gets tremendous glory out of that. You know, there's that age-old analogy it has been used many times, but it never gets old because it's so true. If you take a coal out of the fire, in the fire those coals are red hot, but you take that coal out and it can't keep itself red hot it immediately begins to cool off. Why? Because we were wired to be together. We were wired for family. And that's why God actually commands us in scripture to meet together. And what I love about this is God commands us in scripture to meet together every week, but he practiced what he preached when he was here on earth. He met together with the believers every week. But Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 to 25 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So already back then, you had some of that, those bedside Baptists, right? Okay? They already had them back in the New Testament times. But he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to meet together corporately and publicly to be encouraged, to be strengthened in the truth, to love each other and grow in joy and to proclaim God's glory and worship, we need to be together. And like I said, God practiced what he preached when he was here on earth. That's amazing to me. Now, I know there's a couple of excuses why, and, 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 and often for very good reasons, but a lot of people will say, you know, different excuses why they don't go to church is, first of all, but there's not a good church around, or the church hurt me. And certainly there is something to both of those excuses. Certainly we know as we look around our, our country and our province and our nation, we certainly see the church in many uh, cases is in shambles and there are all kinds of problems. And there's problems in every church. There's problems in this church. And I know many people here in this church who have been deeply hurt. I know people have been hurt by this church and I know people have been church hurt by other churches and deeply hurt. And, and real stories of... Of pain, So I know that those things are real. But let me ask you this. Did Jesus only go to good churches? I wish we had the time to go through the rest of this passage. I really did do because it's a lot of fun, but I just don't. If I would read you the rest of this passage, you would see that this particular church he shows up in on this Sabbath is going to try to kill him right after the message. Okay? <laughs> They're going to take him to the top of a very high hill, and they want to throw him off the cliff. And it just wasn't his time to die, so he just walks away. I like that about him too, okay? But you, you, just, you can't kill God unless he wants to be killed, right? So, um, but you think you've been hurt by the church. Other people have been hurt by the church. Jesus was hurt by religious people as well. But in the end, we need to be together, not neglecting the meeting together. Maybe you're here now from a different community or from far away and you're just visiting or whatever it is. Let me tell you this. Unless your church is, is and I know there are churches like this too where it's kind of it's outright heresy. They've walked away from preaching the word of God. I just wouldn't classify that as a church anymore. But anything else, if it's a church, you just go, okay? If there's nothing else around you, just go, you said, it just feels so dead. You know what? You need it, okay? And, and you can be a light in that place, but we need to meet together. Do not neglect to meet together, and Jesus is our example in that. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's go back and let's look at the prophecy that Jesus reads, and uh, I'm going to read it to you again, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and now he's going to read out of Isaiah chapter 61, which I'm going to show you in just a couple of minutes, okay? He's going to read out of Isaiah 61, And uh, it's a messianic prophecy, okay? Which is really important that you understand that. And the Jews all knew it was a messianic prophecy, okay? He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him as we looked at before. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, there are a lot of people today who claim, and uh, it's considered intellectual in many theologically liberal circles, to claim that Jesus was just a good person and he never thought he was God. Okay? Okay. And if you want examples of people who think this, just read McLean's magazine every year Easter, okay? Without fail, every year they, they run the same humdrum, the Time magazine does the same thing, articles about either Jesus didn't exist or Jesus didn't think he was God. And the reason they think that they say this, it's, a, it's, this, it's this popular thing that Jesus didn't think he was God, is they'll say, well, look in your Bible and find one place where Jesus said in English, I am the Messiah, And they're right that you won't find those four words anywhere in the Gospels in our English Bibles. And so people go, see, he never actually claimed to be Messiah. That's just something Christians added in later. He was just a good person. Well, the thing you have to understand is Jesus didn't come in in flesh to Canada in 2017. If he had, he might have said, I am the Messiah. But he didn't come to us. He came to first-century Israel, to the Jewish people, and so he wasn't speaking to us, he was speaking to them. And in their language, he was saying, I am the Messiah. And so this is just one example. This is just one example out of many. In their language, in their culture, that's why they wanted to kill him. To those who think Jesus never claimed to be God, I would just like to hear a good explanation as to why he was crucified then. And why these people here want to throw him off a cliff. There's a reason they wanted to, and that is because he was speaking their language, and in their language, he was shouting, I am the Messiah. He gets up, he reads a messianic prophecy, he sits down, they're all looking at him, and he says, today it's fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah, that's what it is. So there's no denying that Jesus knew he was the Messiah, and there's no denying that was his calling in life, and that he spoke it clearly to the people who were around him. And then it says in the next verse, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they're like, again, like I said before, here they've watched him. He's back in Nazareth. Now the thing you have to understand what Nazareth is, here in Steinbeck, I don't really consider us a, a, a city. We're more of a small town, whatever we are, 10 or 11 or 12,000 people or something. Okay? Um, but even at that size as a town, you don't know everybody in Steinbach. Nazareth was a teeny tiny little village. They all knew each other. So he comes back here. He has, this is the start of his ministry. He's just come out of the wilderness. First place he goes back is to Nazareth. And he sits in front of these tiny little village. They all know each other. They watched him grow up. Like I said before, they watched him go through adolescence. And his voice was cracking and all that awkward stage. They know Jesus. I mean, it's amazing to me, the whole incarnation, that the God of the universe would come down to earth, be born as a baby, and go through all of those stages and just live a regular human life. So they watch him grow up like this, and now suddenly he's gone, and then he comes back, and they're marveling this anointing that's on him. There's like a power on him. They can sense the spirit on him. They marvel at him, but at the same time, they're bothered, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? This can't be the Messiah. He can't. I mean, we know him. I mean, we, do, we know everything about him. It can't be him, and then he gets up and reads this messianic prophecy and says, today it's me. No, it can't be him. This is, this is Joseph's son. We know him. All right, and they're blown away, but I want to show you now something that Jesus was also doing in this prophecy that is really fascinating. See, the thing you have to understand is it says he got up, he unrolled the scroll, and he read Isaiah 61, but the interesting thing is, I'm going to put it up in just a moment, is when you actually put the Isaiah 61 passage up there, Jesus intentionally stops his reading mid-sentence and leaves out a whole chunk of the prophecy, Now this is really interesting because he's not quoting off the top of his head, it's not like he's just uh, kind of uh, playing with the text, it's not like he might have forgotten it as if the Son of God could forget it, it's not any of that, he's reading in front of them, he's reading it, he's got the whole thing there, but he intentionally stops partway through the prophecy and leaves out a whole chunk, okay? And I'm going to show that to you. I'm going to put that Isaiah 61 passage up there, and you're going to see them together. So there's Luke 4 on the left, there's Isaiah 61 on the right. You'll see the whole part up to the underline is, is basically the same, it's almost identical. Now, you'll notice there's some little wording differences. You're like, why would the wording be different in the two places if he was reading from Isaiah? It just has to do with the fact that Isaiah, I mean, uh, Luke and Jesus would have been reading from a different version of the Old Testament than that we have today. Not that the message was different. It's just like I read, I'm reading out of the, I have the ESV for me myself personally. Many of you have the NIV. If we would read the same passage in both Bibles, the wording would be different. The message is exactly the same but the wording would be a little different because it's, it's a different translation. Same reason here why the wording is a little different. But you'll see that even though the wording is different, they're the same. So in, in Luke 4, Jesus is, is reading, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You look at Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. It's the same same. Going down to the end, though, and then there's a change, Okay. So at the end of the passage that Jesus reads in Luke chapter 4, he ends it with to, and so he's to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus ends the prophecy, the reading at, here. so this is the messianic prophecy and the Messiah is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But if you'll notice in what it actually says in Isaiah, he has cut it off early. And again, he's done this on purpose. He's not quoting off the top of his head. He hasn't forgotten something as if that was uh, the, something the Word of God could do anyway. But he has intentionally done this. It says in Isaiah 61, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He's intentionally left that part out. Okay, it's, it's part of the same sentence. It's not like there's a passage break there. It's part of the same sentence. Why, why would Jesus intentionally leave out, okay, the part about the day of the vengeance of our God? Well, we have different options as to how we can interpret this, and the first one is that perhaps Jesus is canceling out the whole vengeance part, okay, and this is where a lot of Christians go with this nowadays, uh, again, if you go kind of more theologically liberal, they would say, you know, the new, this is just Jesus cancelling out all that Old Testament vengeance stuff because Jesus cancels that stuff out. The New Testament cancels out the Old. Jesus is just about grace. There's no more judgment. There's no more wrath. There's no more punishment for sin. All of that's done in the New Testament, and Jesus ended it, and that's why Jesus didn't read it, okay? And so that's one way that a number of people will approach this passage and why Jesus leaves out the part about vengeance. But this is not an actual option at all, and I'll tell you why. The reason is because Isaiah is just as much the Word of God as Luke. Isaiah is just as much the Word of God as Luke. See, there's this whole movement now of these these people who call themselves red-letter Christians, that somehow the words of Jesus in the Gospels are the only part of the Bible that really apply to us anymore today and it's absolutely untrue. Jesus himself would rebuke us in person if he was here in the flesh and he would say, how can you cancel out some of my words for some of my other ones because he's God, they're all his words. The red ones are just the ones he spoke while he was here in the flesh and the rest of the ones are the ones, he's the word of God that he spoke when he wasn't in the flesh, but they're all him. They're all him. And nowhere in the Bible, I can take you through passage after passage after passage, and I just don't have time in this message, I could show you the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and Jesus himself in many passages had an unbelievably high view of the Old Testament Scriptures. They believed the Old Testament was the Word of God. So there's no way Jesus was cancelling out a part of Isaiah's prophecy. Absolutely none. It's not like he was, he was correcting because Isaiah had sort of some of these wrong Old Testament ideas. If he was correcting Isaiah, that would mean he was correcting the Holy Spirit who was inspired Isaiah. And so like I said, in many places throughout the Gospels, I'll just show you one quote, but I could show you many. I mean, I think of, I said I would only do one, but right away I'm doing John 10 35. I did it last night too, but in John 10 35, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and in part of that conversation, he says to them, and the scriptures cannot be broken, speaking of the Old Testament. The scriptures, the Old Testament cannot be broken. In other words, if the Old Testament says something's gonna happen, it will happen because the scriptures cannot be broken. That's what Jesus thought of the Old Testament. Jesus was not a red-letter Christian. He was an all-letter Christian. If it's in the Bible, it's him because he's the word of God. In Matthew five seventeen to 18, he said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's what Jesus said. He said, not an iota, not the smallest dot will pass from the Old Testament until it has all been accomplished. All of it. So that means that everything Isaiah prophesied under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is going to happen, and that includes the part about the day of vengeance. And in fact, if we fast forward to the end of the New Testament, to Revelation chapter 19, the New Testament shows us the fulfillment of that Isaiah 61 prophecy about the day of vengeance, and I'll just read you a a six-verse portion here. Um, Starting in verse 11, John sees the future, and he sees Isaiah 61 being fulfilled, and here's what he sees. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. How many of you knew that Jesus is more than a peacemaker? He's more than a peacemaker. He's also a warrior. He is a peacemaker, and I love that about him. He loves to bring peace. He brings peace wherever he rules and everyone is submitted to him. He brings peace, and it's a wonderful peace. But how many of you knew that he is more than a peacemaker? He is also a warrior. How many of you love that Jesus? See, he's not just a lamb, he's also a lion. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This is why he's worthy to be worshipped for all of eternity. He's not a weakling. He is the all-powerful, ancient of days, almighty God of the universe, and he will awe-inspire us. And he hates sin, and he is holy and good. His eyes are from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This day is coming. This, what I just read you up here, as surely as tomorrow is Thanksgiving, okay, here in Canada anyway, okay? But as surely as tomorrow is Thanksgiving here in Canada, surely this day will come. And it is marked on a calendar, on God's calendar somewhere, and Jesus is going to come back, and on that day, he is going to trample down all the evil systems of this world. And he's not going to say, please. It's not going to be, please, would you desist? Would you quit with the terrorism and the mass murder? If you could just quit by the next month, and here's your kind of, no. He's going to crush. He's going to break. He's going to smash the sex slave trade. He's going to smash the pornography industry. He's going to smash the abortion industry. It's all going to be obliterated. And in fact, here in Revelation, there's more quotes from Isaiah uh, Isaiah 63 and some of Isaiah's prophecies. He's going to do that because he's God. And he's holy. And when we live with him in his kingdom forever and ever, it's going to be an amazing place of peace and purity and goodness, amen? So that's what Jesus is going to do. Okay? So why then? So clearly, Isaiah 61, the whole prophecy is going to come true. This part about the day of vengeance is also going to happen. So the question then is, why would Jesus intentionally leave that part out when he's reading this prophecy in the synagogue? Why would he leave it out? And again, I mean, is he, is he embarrassed about it? Absolutely not. Jesus is absolutely unafraid to be himself. Maybe you're thinking, well, maybe he was worried about being politically incorrect, but even that doesn't work. First of all, Jesus isn't afraid. In fact, right after this, he's going to tweak his Jewish listeners until they want to kill him. But even if that were true, even if he was afraid, which he couldn't be afraid, he's us of being politically incorrect. In that synagogue, in our day, it's, incorrect, it's politically incorrect to talk about the day of vengeance of our God, that he's holy and he's going to smash sinful systems. It's, it's politically incorrect. But in his day, in those Jewish synagogues, that was not politically incorrect. In fact, they were looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and smash all their enemies. It was politically incorrect for him not to read it. So why didn't he read it and I'll tell you why he intentionally left it out is because he was putting a space in the prophecy see the Jews had always assumed and it wasn't their fault see Paul talks over and over and over again in his epistles about the mystery of the gospel that that, that there were things that God had written about and prophesied about in the Old Testament that nobody could see until after they were fulfilled and then we could look back and say look at that Paul says it was a mystery nobody could tell So before Jesus came the first time, everybody thought the day of him ushering in God's favor and the day of vengeance were the same day. But Jesus came at his first coming and he goes, let me open up to you the first little bit of the window of the mystery of the gospel. Something you couldn't see in the Old Testament before I came along is that there's actually a space between the start of the time of God's favor and the day of God's wrath. There's a space. And so he doesn't read the second part of the prophecy because he didn't come that first time to bring vengeance. That day is still in the future. Perhaps he'll read the second part of it when he comes back. But the first time he came, he didn't come to judge. He said it over and over again. He didn't come to to smash evil systems. He came to die. He came to forgive and he came to offer up salvation to the entire world. And he said, I've come to reclaim the time, the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the awesome thing about that is because the day of vengeance hasn't come yet, it means we are still right now, and that's why I'm titling this message this, we are still right now in the time of God's favor. Now, what does it mean that we are in the time of God's favor right now? Does it mean that nothing will ever go bad for you? Now, there are some preachers out there that they'll say, we're living in the time of God's favor, and what that means is you'll never get sick, you know, you, or you shouldn't ever, if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick, you'll never suffer, you'll never have poverty. Is that what it means, we're living in the time of God's favor? It's not what it means. Jesus said elsewhere, in this world, you will have not just a few, but many troubles, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The fact that we are in the time of God's favor does not mean he will rescue us from all bad things. We live in a broken world, and God will not shield us from all the results of that brokenness. So what does it mean that we are right now living in the time of God's favor? I'll tell you what it means. It means that the invitation is still open, that it doesn't matter who you are, the absolute worst enemies of God. Imagine that, that the God of the universe would allow enemies to even exist, people to actually rebel against him and not just obliterate them like that, yet he doesn't. We're in the time of God's favor, which means that even his worst enemies, the worst murderers, the worst perverts, cheaters, liars, and any of the rest of us, if we don't fit into one of those categories, it's all of us. The offer of free salvation is open to all. And during the time of God's favor, no matter how bad you are or how bad you've been, you're never too bad because we're in the time of God's favor. And he says, I will gladly give it to you free salvation and forgiveness and a fresh start for anyone who wants to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that amazing? We're living in the time of God's favor. It also means that for you and I who have already given our lives to him, it means he's not mad at us. It doesn't mean there's not, there might be times when there's things we need to change and he may have to discipline us. Absolutely. Hebrews talks about if God doesn't discipline us, he doesn't love us. Okay. He does discipline us and he does love us. But in all of that, he is not wrathful with us. He is full of hope for us because we are living in the time of God's favor. Now, I want to draw that out a little bit more for you, what it means for God's favor to be on you, and I'm going to do it out of Scripture, so I'm not making anything up. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 8, because Paul just does an amazing job, just an incredible job of of drawing out what it means to live in a time of God's favor. And so I'm going to read you just a few verses here from Romans 8, starting in verse 31, and Paul says this, "'What then shall we say to these things?' if God is for us, who can be against us? You, know what it, you want to know what it means to be living in a time of God's favor? It means that God is for us, not against us. He is for us. Now, I know some of you grew up in homes with harsh, distant, or abusive dad, or mom, or both. And it's hard for you even to grasp the concept of a parent or a father who's actually on your side. But that's what Romans 8 verse 31 says. This is what it means to be in the time of God's favor, that he is actually for you. He is for you. Even when you're all messed up inside, and you're weak, and you're helpless, and all those sorts of things, and you're stuck in stuff, he is for you. He is not against us, you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now look at this next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about that. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about that. God has already given us his son. That's the hardest thing. That's the most expensive thing. That's the most costly thing God could give us. How will he not also with him give us anything else? Anything else is easy after that. Isn't that true? Like, he's already given us his son. What else wouldn't he give us? If he'll give us that, he'll give us anything. Isn't that true? I mean, let's, let's just do a little mind experiment here for just a moment, okay? Because I, there's, there's, there's no scenario I can envision where this would be true. Um, because I don't, there's no, nothing and no one I love in this world more than, one, than my wife and my kids. But let's just imagine there was someone that I loved so much that I would be willing to give up one of my kids for them. Like, I can't imagine. Those of you who are parents, you know that. Like, how could you love someone enough to give up one of your kids for them? It's, it's not even possible. Let's do the mind experiment because that's what God did for us. Imagine you love someone so much that you would give up one of your kids for that person. Now, think about this. That, that, like, y- the, the intensity of that love would just be massive. But now, think of something else. Once you've given up your kid for that person, you love them so much now, giving them the house, that's no problem. Isn't it true? I mean, I love my. I would trade in my house for my kids any day of the week, that's no problem. I mean, it, it's not even on the same, that's not even the same ballpark. If I love you enough that I would give up one of my kids for you, if you wanted my house, done, that's easy. You want the van, easy. You want whatever's in the savings account, that's really easy. Um, but whatever you want, okay, whatever you want, if I've given up one of my kids for you, you can have it. It's the same, that's what Paul's saying here with God. This is what it means to be in a time of God's favor. He gave up his son for you. Now you're going through whatever you're going through and you think God doesn't care. He already gave up his son for you. You don't think when you cry out to him late at night or early in the morning and you don't know what you're gonna do about that family situation or about that health situation or about whatever it is and you have no idea and is God gonna help, help you. He already gave up his son. He will give you whatever else you need to get through it. It doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to have an easy life. Absolutely not. It doesn't mean he's going to take away every sickness, but it means he's going to give you something better. If he gave you his son, he'll give you whatever else you need. And you know what else is amazing about that, about living in a time of God's favor, that he gave up his son for you? The fact that he gave up his son for you means he's never, ever, ever going to give up on you. Because isn't it true that the more you pay for something, the, the harder it is to give up on it? Isn't it true? Okay, like if I go and get something from the dollar store and I come home and it doesn't work, what do I do? Do I spend hours trying to fix it? No. If it's from the dollar store, I mean, it's not even worth getting back in the vehicle really and going back and returning it. I don't even know if dollar stores do returns, but I'm not really a big expert in that. But if I got it from the dollar store and it doesn't work, I'll tell you what I do, Me, chuck it in the garbage. Because it didn't cost me anything, okay? But now imagine, you know, you bought a, a tool, maybe it's 100 bucks or 200 bucks, okay? And that thing, you go home and it doesn't work. You just chuck it in the garbage? Maybe, maybe if you're Bill Gates you do, but I don't do that, okay? That's a hundred bucks, okay? I'm gonna get someone to fix it. I'm gonna go back to the store and see if I can get it fixed. If my van breaks down, I surely don't throw it in the trash. <laughs> I got thousands of dollars invested in that thing. I call someone up, uh, you gotta fix it, hundreds of dollars. Oh man, but I, got, I have no choice, I'm stuck, right? You get a crack in your house and a wall somewhere, you don't walk away, kids, we're going to the sleep suite, that's it, we're done with this place, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you've been paying for that thing for years, and you've got years and years left to pay for that thing. You don't just walk away. Why? Because it's expensive. And the more you pay for something, the more it costs you, the less easy it is for you to give up. Now let me tell you this. God gave up his son for you. That is the ultimate price he could ever pay. There is no way he will ever give up on you. Never, ever, ever, ever could God give up on you. He sacrificed his life for you, and that means he is all in the whole way all the time. And you say, but I've fallen for the thousandth time. There's no way he can forgive me this time. Absolutely, he gave his son for you. And he will never give up on you. This is what it means to live in a time of God's favor. Who shall bring, verse 33 says, any charge against God's elect? He already invested his son in you. Who dares now bring a charge against someone when he's invested his son in you? It is God who justifies. Who dares bring any charge? So you know those thoughts you often wake up with in the morning and you go to bed with that night, always condemning, you're a bad this and you're a bad that and you can't do this and you're not a good parent and you're blah, 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 blah and you're just always going to have that problem and you're always going to be this and you're just a no-good old story. Those thoughts aren't from God. The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin, there's no question. If you're in the middle of doing something wrong, he'll come along and he'll say, you need to stop that. But he is not coming against you all the time, telling you, you'll never change, you'll never do this, you'll never do that, you'll never do that. Philippians 1 verse 6, but I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. His words to you are always hope. He always believes. That's what 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 13 says, love always hopes. It always believes the best. He might tell you to stop doing something, and you might say, but I can't stop. And he says, I know I'm going to help you, and I still love you, and I've got hope for you. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Those thoughts you have are not from God. They're from your flesh and or they're from the devil, but they're not from him. Verse 34, who is to condemn? So who will bring any charge? The only only one who has the right to condemn us is God but he won't do it because he he paid to justify us. And Jesus would have the right to condemn us, but he won't do it either because he's the one who died for us. And no one else has a right to condemn us because no one else is perfect. We don't owe anybody else anything. So who's going to bring a charge? Not God. Who's going to condemn? Not Jesus. He's the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He came to proclaim the time of the Lord's favor, which is right now we're living in the time of his favor. He has invested the blood of his son to save us. We're living in the time of his favor. Now here's the thing I need to say to you. It's time for us to accept and receive that favor in our hearts and start to live like we're living in the time of his favor. See, we've talked about this chapter before. We've read this chapter before. So why is it that so many of us still continue to live in a cycle of hopelessness and despair and condemnation? I think a lot of Christians are caught in a cycle of hopelessness. I think that's why so many Christians are stuck in stuff and they, they, they're, they're not getting out. And I think for in the most part, it's not because they're bad. I don't think there's a lot of Christians out there who are going, I just want to stay stuck. I haven't met anyone like that yet anyway who's stuck and wants to be stuck. I just like being stuck. Okay? The reason they're stuck for the most part is because they just feel hopeless. There's no desire. I just can't get out. And the moment you have no hope, you've got no motivation to press into the Spirit to fight the good fight, to pray hard, to do what you need to do. Hope is the thing that gets you moving. But so many Christians have no hope. And why is it that we have no hope? When we've got these amazing truths here in God's word that speak to us. And we saw last week that God's word is life for us. And we live by every word from God. And when I read you these truths, isn't it true that you can feel that life? I read you Romans 8 and you can feel it in the room. It's like, wow, that's amazing. That is life. So this treasure is right there. Why are we not appropriating it? And we go to messages and we have our, you know, week after week and we have our devotions. But it doesn't appropriate and I'll tell you one of the reasons why that is, and part of it is because of the way God's wired us, just because you've heard something, see, and I'll just, a little bit of biology, but your brain, and really oversimplified biology, but your, your brain is split into two. There's a left side that's very logical, processes words, and then there's a right side, which many of you guys didn't know existed, which is where your feelings are, okay? And, uh, and, and, and now the thing is, if you, if, if we lived, and a lot of people just think, well, if I can just learn something logically, I can live it in my, in my mind. And the fact of the matter is, uh, utter abysmal failure, we don't live out of the logical side of our, our brain. If that was true, we could just memorize the Ten Commandments and then live, live perfectly the rest of our lives. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just learn something and do it. Just hear it said, take some notes, and now you can do it. It doesn't work that way because you and I live, it's the way we're wired out of what the Bible would call our hearts. Biologically, we could say the right side of our brain, which is where all of our subjective and subconscious emotions are, our secret fears and shames and joys and delights and dreams. Those are the things that drive us, and that's why we can learn, and we can sit in church, and we can even have our devotions week after week, day after day after day, and there's not much change because it hasn't bridged into the heart. It hasn't gone from the mind to the heart. You say, well, how do we bridge over truth from that mind part to the heart part? How do we take this incredible treasure, Romans 8, Luke chapter 4, we're living in the time of God's favor. If that would ever sink into our hearts, not just into our minds, it would change us. I mean, I just don't think any of us here today, there's this tremendous treasure. Can you imagine if there was this tremendous treasure and everybody can take this treasure home with them and if we looked at the treasure church and said, that's amazing, and then went home and didn't bring it home with us, wouldn't that be sad? We have this amazing treasure, this reality that God's favor is on us and he loves us so tremendously and we look at it on a Sunday morning or maybe we glaze over it in a devotional time and we go, wow, that's really neat and then we leave it there and we don't bring it inside. How do we bring it inside? There's many ways. I'm only going to look at one and I'll just talk about two briefly. I think one of the key ways, perhaps the most important way is through obedience. The Bible talks over and over and over again about obedience if you hear about something and don't do anything about it, it just stays there in the mind. But when you start to do something, and you start to experience it, and you start to walk it out, there's something about doing that begins to bridge it from the left over to the right. You begin to experience it. And it begins to change you as you do it over time. I don't want to get too much into obedience, I think, but I think obedience is one of the keys. There's a second key, though, um, among others, no doubt. But there's a second key, and that is devotional... We need to learn, and I talked about this already last week, to connect relational relief with Jesus in our devotional times. That's the point of devotions. See, in the West, we're so left-side of the brain-centered, logic-centered, that even when we do devotions, we do it as something to check off a list, something to learn. So we just read and study, read and study, read and study, and then we wonder, why is this dry as a bone? It will always be dry as a bone when it's just in the left and it's not tied to your heart in any way. If it's not tied to your heart in any way, you won't you're not engaging that heart side of you. And so I'm going to put up that devotional outline I put up last week. That we've been working through many of our cell groups are working through this right now in the cells this month. But we looked at, you know, these different things when you go to your devotions, quiet your soul. Be grateful. Welcome Jesus' presence. Then get into the Word. It's so important to get into the Word, but you get into it relationally. You'll notice those first three exercises up there. A lot of people think, that's just goofy stuff. I just want to get right to the learning. That's why your devotions are dry as a bone. Because it's just in your mind, and you're convinced that everything you ever need is just in your mind. It's not true. You need it in your heart. You need to actually have a walk with Jesus. So those first ones are all about that right side, engaging that relational side of you to be with Jesus, to quiet, to be grateful, to actually welcome the presence of Jesus into that place where you're having your devotional time, that is absolutely uh, so important. But now I want to just add a little bit of practical stuff to that point three about the His presence. Because I just think this is so important. The treasure I want you to go home with today is not this outline. The treasure I want you to go home with today is that you're living in the time of God's favor. But I want to just give you a couple of little practical ideas and some exercises to try this week and for the next couple of weeks to help you take that favor and bridge it from the mind into the heart, it will change your life. If you would actually begin to really receive that favor into your life, the hope that, that God has invested his son in you and he loves you so much and he will never give up on you and he has so much hope for you, if that would begin to bridge into your heart, we would change the world. You would have so much hope, you would tackle anything. You would tackle your parenting, you would tackle your marriage, you would tackle evangelism in your workplace because you would be so overcome with the love of Jesus in your life. So how do we bridge it there? Let me just give you a couple of practical exercises to try, okay? And if you don't do these, you haven't lost your salvation. These are, there's different ways of doing this, absolutely. These are just some ideas to help you. The real truth is the favor of God in Romans 8. These are just exercises to help you maybe get some of that treasure into your heart. So let me give you three things to try this week during that welcome his presence time in your devotional time. All right. And the first one is picture Jesus sitting there with you when you have your devotional time. Picture Jesus sitting there with you. You say that just seems a little weird. Just remember all of this everything I'm going to tell you to do is based on God's word. God's word says Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. That means he is with you when you're in devotional time. This is all about connecting your heart to him not just your mind. So picture him sitting there with you in your devotional time. Actually take a moment to do that. Jesus is actually with me, not just in some ethereal sense, but in a very real sense, his spirit is with me, okay? Then the second thing is, let him speak favor into your life. Let him speak favor into your life. Now, some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. His grace has touched you in so, much, so many ways. You have so much inner healing. You, you already do this, and you're, it's easy for you to allow him to do this. But I know that numbers of you, and I've been like this much, many times in my life. You're so twisted up with condemnation inside that if you would stop to say, Jesus, I want you to speak favor into my life, you wouldn't be able to hear anything he would say. And you wouldn't believe it if, he did, if, if you could hear it. Because you just think you're bad, 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 and all that Jesus ever wants to talk to you about is conviction, and it's not true. So I'm just going to help you. This is like baby steps. This is like training wheels. I'm going to give you some things that Jesus wants to say, and I know he wants to say them because I've just been talking to you from the Bible about how much he loves you. Let Jesus say to you some of these things and come up with some of your own. Let Jesus say to you, son or daughter, not son-daughter, okay? Pick one. We won't go down that path. (laughs) Son or daughter, I've been looking forward to this time. Thank you for joining me. Do you ever think that Jesus will be happy to see you in your devotional time? He can't can't be happy to see me. I'm I'm too bad. I'm too unspiritual. I don't pray enough. Do you ever think he invested his blood for you? He loves when you want to take a moment to think about him. Why wouldn't you just let him say that to you? Son or daughter, I've been looking forward to this time. Thank you for joining me. Maybe you're in the morning or it's in the evening and you're feeling like a failure because you just did whatever for the hundredth time or thousandth time. Why don't you let him say this to you? Have you ever let Jesus say this to you in the morning? Son or daughter, it's my joy to forgive you. Let's start fresh today. Have you ever let Jesus just tell you, let's start fresh today today? We always want to hang on to yesterday. Oh, I was so bad yesterday. I've got no hope to ever change. Let Jesus speak to you. Let's start fresh today. I died for you. You say, this is all a little, this is all a little quirky. This is biblical. His mercies are new every morning. This is all biblical, what I'm telling you. Jesus says, let's start fresh today. Let him speak that into your life. So you never heard your father maybe not, or your mom either, maybe, tell you he was proud of you. Have you ever thought to ask Jesus? Ask him to point out something good about you and tell you he's proud of you. Oh, but I couldn't do that. That's so selfish. All we can hear is condemnation, 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 but we're living in a time of God's favor, and he gave up his son for you. He thinks you're precious, For many of us, this is one of the deepest things we need. Whenever we do listening prayer, we're always trying to listen about some big decision. And Jesus is saying, that decision is important, but that's nothing to how important it is for you to hear my love. That's what you need to hear. For some of you, you just need to hear Jesus' affirmation that he loves you and he's proud of you and that'll change your life. He can already figure out and work in your life no matter which job or business you choose. But if you can't receive his love, you won't be able to be very fruitful for him. Let him speak that to you. Or, or ask him to tell you something good you've done from the past week and point it out to you and appreciate you. You say, but this is selfish. It's not selfish when Jesus is talking to you. You need to hear it. Or let Jesus speak this to you. I'm gonna change you. Philippians 1:6. I love that promise. I go back to it whenever I start to feel like I'm never gonna change in this. I go back there. But I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let Jesus say to you, I'm gonna change you. You're not hopeless. I never fail. Okay? So picture Jesus sitting there with you. Let him speak favor into you. And there's 100,000 other things he could say to you favor. But I'm just putting some training wheels there for some of you who have never done this. Third thing to help you, it's up there already. Make this exercise real. Okay. Make this exercise come alive. How do you make this exercise come alive? Just, again, a couple of ideas. All of this is about taking a truth that's in Scripture and bridging it just from our logical minds into our hearts where we can receive it. This is why Pastor Ray's been talking for years about hearing God. To just read dry, dusty words on a page doesn't do anything. We've got to get it into our hearts where it's a real relationship. So here's just a couple of ideas you can try to make this conversation come alive in your heart. And it's just about getting creative to cross some of those wires so that you're not just loving God with your mind, but just with your heart, soul, and mind. Isn't that what Jesus commanded us to do? These are creative ideas for engaging the heart and soul with your mind. But one idea to make this conversation with Jesus real so that his favor is actually impacting you is write the conversation down in your journal. And what I'll often do is I'll just write down J for Jesus, not because I'm trying to be disrespectful, but just because I don't want to write out Jesus over and over again, but I'll just write out J, and I'll just write out you know, a statement of his favor that is biblical. I'll write it out to myself, and I'll just receive it, and I'll have a conversation with him about that. That makes it real. Another thing you could do, and there's a hundred different creative ways you could do this. this don't, be, don't be limited by these two ideas. You can do whatever you want, but Dr. Doug Weiss gave us an idea. He did this with some of the men's ministry leaders, and uh, I talked to several of them afterwards. They were in tears talking about this powerful um, exercise. They would set up an empty chair and uh, picture that Jesus was sitting there in the other chair, and then what he had them do, in, specifically in this exercise, was tell Jesus something from their life that they could not forgive themselves for. And I, most of us have something like that in our lives, right? Where we have, we've done something in our life where we can't forgive ourselves for that. And then what he had them do is, because they know Jesus forgives them, but they just can't receive it. Then he had them go and sit in the chair and speak on behalf of Jesus back to themselves forgiveness. And it was powerful. Okay, really powerful. That's something you could try too. Now again, I know some of you are going, oh, this is so goofy. This is so goofy, okay? I'll tell you what's goofy. You've had bone-dry devotions for years and years and years, but you're not willing to try anything new to see if you could change it. In fact, of the matter is, Romans 8, God loves you. Don't you want to receive his love? Wouldn't you be willing to try? Are you what I think of? You know, here, let me finish this message with this story to you. Naaman went to Elisha to get healed. You remember that story in the Old Testament? And he was thinking Elisha was going to do some mumbo-jumbo big stuff to him, and then he would be healed. And you know what Elisha said? Go dunk in the Jordan. And Naaman said, there's no way I'm going to dunk in the Jordan. That's just a dirty river. We've got better rivers back home. And so he's going to head home and not get the healing. Okay? But Naaman's servant says, why wouldn't you at least try it? You came all this way. Why wouldn't you at least try it? Okay, fine, I'll try it. And he goes and he dunks in that dirty river. And what is it? After he dunks for the seventh time, he comes up and he's healed. Some of you are so bound up in pride, you don't, you're so bound up in that left logical side, you never want to be seen as weak. You never want to be seen as weird, and you're afraid to try anything because of it. Maybe, just maybe, a little dunk in that dirty Jordan might be the thing where the Spirit begins to move powerfully in your life. It's a time of God's favor. Don't you want to receive it? I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to help us make our relationship with Jesus real. Only he can do it. And so I'm going to pray that this week, those of you who want, we can do just like last week. If, you're, if you want and if you don't, you don't have to. There's no pressure. But those of you who really want your relationship with Jesus to come alive, you can just put your hands out. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to really touch you and do the work that only he can do to make your spirit and heart come alive, that your relationship with Jesus would become more real. Holy Spirit, we want to invite you today, every willing heart, every willing heart here today, I just pray that you would touch them, Jesus. That you would touch them, Holy Spirit. And that you would make their relationship with Jesus come alive. That as they step out and take risks this week to try and appropriate these truths, we are living in the time of your favor. Holy Spirit, that you would make these truths come alive, that you would bridge these truths from our minds into our hearts, and that you would change us, that we would start to receive your love. I pray that you would open up the windows of our hearts like Paul prays in Ephesians 3. This is a biblical prayer, and we know that you want to say yes, that we would know how much Jesus loves us, the height and the depth and the length and the width of how much you love and hope for us that that love and hope would wash like a flood through our hearts, changing our lives, changing our families, and changing this church. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Selfland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.